Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Music, Money, and Life podcast. So it's been a while since I've released a podcast. I think it's been a good six months or so since I've released any podcasts. And one of the reasons it's been so long is that I'm actually in the process of launching a completely new podcast. And I really say podcast for lack of a better word. It's really going to be more of a show. It's going to have a completely different focus than Music, Money, and Life. So this new podcast that I'm creating is, is really all about creating a platform for artists, up-and-coming artists, and even some established artists to come on and promote themselves and promote their music. There is a sea of music out there. I think there's something like 60,000 new tracks uploaded to Spotify every single day. So there's a ton of really good music out there. And really what I want to do with this new podcast is, is create a platform where I can help artists get more exposure and reach a wider audience. So I've been in the process of getting that set up. This will be both a video and audio podcast slash show. I'll have more details about that in the next several weeks. In the meantime, what I'm doing to sort of close this chapter of this particular podcast, Music, Money, and Life, which, which I've done... I think over eight years now, over 100 episodes over the years, what I'm doing is I'm creating several, probably four or five sort of compilation episodes to end this chapter where I'm featuring some of the, the best guests and the best moments on this podcast over the years. So that's what this uh, particular podcast is. Um, before we get into that, one other announcement for those of you who are interested in licensing your music, I'm launching a, a program. It's the first program I've done like this in about two years. It's called the 90-Day Music Licensing Challenge. This program starts on October 1st, and it lasts for 90 days. So if you're interested in working with me one-on-one -on -one and getting your music in TV shows, films, ads, and more, go to my website, which is H-T-L-Y-M. That's H-T-L-Y-M as in how to license your music, premium.com, h-t-l-y-m-premium.com, and all the information is on the homepage. In the meantime, let's get to today's podcast. This uh, first guest, I'm speaking with Michael Landy from Music Orange, and I'm asking him the question whether or not music licensing is a viable career. One of the things I'm trying to do with my website and my courses and my podcast is really give people listening to this like a really sort of clear picture of what this business is like. And one, one of the questions I ask pretty much everybody who comes on my podcast is this idea of can you do licensing as a career? And, and I mean, it's obvious to me that you are looking at your clients and, and listening to how much these different spots pay. I get a I get a lot of people answer this question very differently and it seems like the consensus among supervisors and music libraries is that you can but it's really hard and there's very few people like somebody I, I interviewed a couple months ago told me there's probably only 20 people in the country that make a full-time living licensing music but yet I keep finding people that obviously are so this is a long-winded way of asking you what is your take on doing this as a career? How viable is it to, to build this up to a substantial revenue stream, which it sounds like you have? Yeah, it, it is hard. And I guess, that, uh, you know, there's there's the way we did it, which is, um, you know, doing original music and, and, you know, coming as composers as opposed to trying to marketing our 
music that we do that we would do anyway, you know, or as a band or songwriter. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, you know, when we, when I when we started doing what we're doing, no one no one was doing that. You know, this was in the mid '90s, so uh, um, it was actually kind of frowned down upon that you know bands wouldn't want to be in a spot it felt like selling out or something like that and certainly it's completely come the exact opposite this right. is, now it's a viable way it's one of the only good ways to kind of or it's a it's an excellent way to get your music out there and uh, get some recognition um so i i mostly know it from you know opening a, a music house and I, I definitely think it's possible there's always people that need music and um you know it's hard it's hard to get started. That's it's it's one of these things that once you get started and get going, it's not that hard to sustain, but it's very difficult to start out, and it can yeah. take a long time. Um, but you know, there are there's the slow way, which is how I did it, which was I just said, okay, I'm in business, and you know that took years and years and years. Um, you know, maybe if you're if you're doing uh, you know doing a, uh, as working as a subcontractor for a bigger music house, that's a good way to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're just starting out and you're open to any opportunities, I think even working at an ad agency or a production company is not a bad idea because those are the people that you're you're there at ground zero when people are looking for music. And, you know, perhaps you say, hey, I'm, I, I got some music. I can write music. And someone will say, yeah, OK, why don't you try it? Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's actually a, probably a great place to be for uh, for getting an opportunity. And I think once you have opportunities and you do, you, you know, you, you deliver the goods and, and people are happy with what you've done, it's gets easier and easier to get the next job and the next job. Okay. So in this next segment, I'm speaking with singer songwriter, Kelly party Cooper and Kelly and I are discussing the topic of signing exclusive publishing and licensing contracts versus non-exclusive contracts. And in this segment, Kelly is discussing why he chose to sign an exclusive contract with his publisher and the pros and cons of exclusive versus non-exclusive contracts. Uh, and for your listeners, it's a, it's a really important distinction for people to know the difference between a non-exclusive publishing agreement and an exclusive publishing agreement. Um, yeah. And the, the, the main thing is that with a non-exclusive company, you're not giving them the rights to your music in perpetuity, forever. Um, and this was sort of a continuation of my publishing education that started in Nashville and just sort of transitioned into how it applies to TV and film, music licensing and, and sync fees, and all of the ways that you know you can generate money from your you know, from your songs. Um, so I stumbled in, luckily, you know, I didn't really find any what I would consider bad deals. I saw some kind of silly deals along the way that I just passed on. Um, but when I met Bob at Black Toast Music, that was the beginning of sort of the education on, you know, why would I ever consider giving any publisher exclusive rights to represent my music? Um, and believe me, Aaron, I've had this conversation with every musician, you know, that I've known for probably the last 20 years who asked me about this. And it's a really scary commitment, I think, for any, you know, songwriter or someone that, you know, values their copyright um, to make. 
you know, I tried to do due diligence and talk to a lot of his artists. He already had a, a large exclusive catalog of music. So it was pretty easy for me to talk to his other songwriters who had worked with him for a while. And ultimately I decided that at that point, the five records that I had, it's about 60 songs, um, that I was gonna do it because I wanted someone that had skin in the game. You know, I wanted someone that, you know, wasn't gonna take me on unless they really thought you know, they'd be able to generate income uh, from my songs. Um, that's kind of a long answer to your short question, but that was how I stumbled in. I stumbled in really by trying to network and going to these different, you know, conferences that some of them were performance rights organizations. Some of them were just sort of Los Angeles songwriter groups, just kind of trying to find similar minded people who were looking for other ways you know, to maybe uh, get their songs used and generate income, you know, in a industry where it was getting harder and harder for independent musicians to make, you know, much income off of actual album, physical album sales. Okay. In this next segment, I'm speaking with Emmy award-winning singer songwriter, Michelle Weiss-Moslin, who has had thousands and thousands of placements in TV shows, Film. She's written music for other artists like Nick Carter and many, many more. And in this particular segment, I'm asking Michelle how artists can go about getting their music in films. And this is what Michelle says. Cool. No, that, that that's uh, that's great advice. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted to circle back to one thing, Michelle, that you mentioned a few minutes ago, and you were talking about getting songs in films, and we sort of change the subject, but I wanted to come back to that real quickly because you talked about reading variety and billboard and sort of doing research. Is that how you recommend artists go about trying to get their songs in, in movies? In, in other words, should they, I mean, I'm sure some libraries obviously play songs in films as well, but do you feel like it's better to go directly to the supervisors for films? I feel if the supervisors are supportive and accessible and available yes because first of all financially if your songs are in libraries usually the libraries are not participating in sharing the sync master fees with you some are but some aren't some you're just getting back end right and and also the these that the the reason why the music supervisors use the libraries in addition to easy access is the fees are less. Okay. So there's a system of if it's from a library, the fees demanded are are less. Like for instance, I had a song on a network show last year. It was a CBS show, and the sync they thought the song was in a library because it had been used on a CBS show previously and they had record of that. But it wasn't. It was from my catalog. Had the song been from the library, they were paying $750. Because the song was mine, they paid me 2000 It wasn't gotcha. a library piece. It was an actual piece of my of my catalog. So it's more lucrative. The back end stays the same. The royalties that doesn't doesn't change on. But for the front end, the the fees are actually less. That's why all those libraries exist to help funnel less expensive music. So for that reason, it's better. But if the music supervisors 
are available, then it's wonderful to go to them because you get to work with them directly, be really creative with them, and get to know them, and hopefully they'll use your music again. And it's a direct step. So I prefer that. I would think they would want to work more with the artist and writer as well because it's kind of nice, right? It's kind of creative rather than going to the library. But again, it's all good. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, put, put, put your songs in libraries. Libraries are wonderful. They do great work. And the people at libraries are doing the same thing that I'm suggesting. They're research. They have people there that are researching what's going on, what the projects are, as well as supervisors coming to them going, help, I need this Cossack music in 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, plus it seems like a lot of music supervisors – I mean, I guess everybody's different, but it seems like a lot of them don't necessarily want to be solicited directly by artists. What percentage would, would you say in your experience are actually open to that? I I agree with you that they don't love to be approached, but if they are approached and they're in a good mood <laughs> and have time, they will be there. So I, I mean, I wouldn't have a percentage. I mean, all the music, I all these music supervisors that I know, which is a thousand, ten, eleven, twelve hundred, I know so many of them, have all been receptive to knowing me personally and yeah. been very and been very nice. Most of them. There's a few that have not been nice at all. <laughs> but but um forget those. Right? We only want to work with nice people who are nice right. to us and vice versa. But for the most part, they've been very nice and We'll take a moment to write a quick email that says, I don't need anything right now, or those shows are done, or thank you again. Or So I feel that they will, be, if you write them properly, I always mentor people this. I think part of the problem is that people are very impolite these days in, in this world of texting, where no one uses any pleasantries. And one has to respect people and their time. And one has to thank them and one has to say, I know you're busy and I thank you so much for listening and I hope this finds you well. And, you know, some pleasantries, please. Thank yeah. you. I mean, I, I love this show and I do some research about the show. I And I saw the show and I think my music would fit because I heard this uh, music and it, it's, you know, I feel that my music is a good fit and something that makes them feel like you're not just sending them random music. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, I think they're... And, and again, look, I once had a project where I wrote this music supervisor and I said to him, I, I just called him actually, and I calling is not good anymore. It's much better to write. But in the days of calling, I said, so I got him on the phone. Oh, you need anything for anything? He said, no, but can you do this? And he needed an instrumental no, and that was an instrument. It was, it was to a vocal that he'd recorded a marching band arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. Right? I had no idea how to do that. Yeah. But I said, yes. Right? Because always say yes. Someone says, you know, do you have French music from the Middle Ages? Yes. Yes. I'll yes. do it. And find someone to do it with and go get it. Go make yeah. it. Because yeah. if you say no, all they hear is no. Right. But but again, this person was nice and very receptive. I cold called and I got that gig and I did it with my partner. I grabbed him and we did it. And it was in the movie and you know, we got paid and 
It was fabulous. So I, I, but he was, he was open to talk to me for a second. And because he had something on his plate, he was happy to get rid of, get it off his plate. Yeah. So you just happened to connect with him at the right time. And you said yes, obviously, instead of saying no, even though maybe it wasn't something that you were accustomed, you know, stylistically to doing you, you went for it and you obviously it worked out. Exactly. So that's why I feel that if you approach the music supervisors and they're in a moment when they need something and it's fresh on their mind, they might get right back to you and be totally receptive. And you might write them at a moment where they're so swamped that they just delete your email and they cannot deal with it. And 85 people wrote them for, you know, soliciting today. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's all human. We're all human. And, and so try again. Yeah. Like I believe, I believe in as long as you're polite, try again. I mean, my Nick Carter song, I pitched four times to the same A&R guy. Okay, in the next segment, I'm speaking with Suzanne Hillary from the music licensing agency WackBiz. And Suzanne and I are discussing the importance of networking. And specifically, Suzanne is discussing how difficult it can be for artists to create a full-fledged, full-time career from licensing and why in the pursuit of doing that, it's really important to network and connect with people in the industry. And this is what she had to say. Exactly, exactly. Because I work right. with, with a lot of musicians who don't necessarily want to tour. Maybe they're a little bit older and they just want to. It seems like a lot of musicians turn to licensing to sort of monetize their music and, and not necessarily tour behind it. But obviously what I'm hearing from you, and maybe you can you know, confirm this, is that you really, realistically, you probably need to tour you know, to, to really bring in a full, like it seems like it's more about multiple revenue streams. Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, or this, um, you know, ASCAP, um, BMI, and CSAC, they all do showcases. They all do, uh, for instance, ASCAP sits at the Tribeca Film Festival. BMI sits at the Woodstock Film Festival. The film festivals, you know, getting out, being in front of directors. I mean, if you're a singer-songwriter and you've got an arsenal of new songs and to be able to get a little bit of a showcase with one of your PROs, not a bad idea. You know, maybe that's not about money, but maybe it's just about getting out of your studio and being seen, meeting people. I, I find that... You know, sometimes, you know, I like going to the film festivals for that very reason, because you do meet a lot of writers. You are there with the, of course, with the producers and directors, and you've got to be out. So, I mean, uh, to say in your studio and to say, oh, this song's going to get picked up and placed, and I'm going to make, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars, and this is how I'm going to live. You know, I, you know, I'm being really, you know, the devil's advocate to say, I think that's not really realistic. But, you know, if you had a really good music supervisor, for instance, and there's a whole bunch of them, you know, I, I, I work with. And I personally know like the Sue Jacobs and the and the uh, George Draculuses of the world. I mean, if you you got in good with one of those guys, perhaps. I mean, and, and, and Sue Jacobs does manage uh, some composers and stuff like that too. So I mean, if it, I mean, it does, you know, you could have that really lucky day where just a supervisor falls in love and just you're the go-to person, and that's what happens. I mean, that that's you know that is all in all possible. But you know, it it, it is um, you know sort of the diamond in the rough. It, it, yeah. trying to do that but i i would suggest that you know if you, i understand you know not getting in a van and you know going around the world um but if, if you just in your local communities see where the closest film festivals are keep in touch with your PROs and ask like are you doing any writers rounds are you doing any showcases are you doing any film festivals where i could be seen and heard heard by people you know and i don't believe in paying money
money to do that. Like, you know, coming in, you don't have to be paid, but also, you know, I think people might put together things and say, oh, you have to pay to be a part of this and to be seen by these people. I mean, I don't like any of that either. I think just talking to your uh, PROs and understanding what's in the community that you could do um, that is film, television, and documentary related where you can be with other creatives and be seen and heard by them freely, you know, and uh, get some extra added exposure would be great. I mean, again, I really, you know, implore speaking with your PROs. uh, And and, and that's the other thing, too. Everybody who's composing should be registered with one of those. So royalties are collected, broadcast royalties are collected properly. At the end of the day, you know, those cue sheets are submitted and you're getting the money that you're due. Uh, I do have people coming back at me going, I was in all these episodes during blah, blah, blah season on I don't know what logo or something. And I'll be like, well, okay, what PRO are you with? Well, I'm not. And I'm like, well, how do you expect these broadcast royalties to be collected? So, um, you know, there, there, there's the sort of the 101 of music licensing, which I'm sure you're very, very aware of. Uh, but, but swinging all back around to that, it's a really good thing to be, you know, registered. You have to be. And also to ask for help to go online and see what they're doing locally. Um, I know it's very difficult if you live maybe somewhere in the Midwest. But you never know. I mean, there could be some kind of interesting festival going on, or they could be doing a writer's round, or you might just want to take yourself to Nashville or Los Angeles or Chicago or New York and, and get out and get out and, and sort of put a little bit of your budget into being somewhere to be seen and heard um, and pass out business cards and that kind of thing. That's what I'd recommend. Um, but uh, you, you kind of have to do everything, hit the ground running and, and, and run in a lot of different directions these days, you know, to, to, to make that living. Okay, finally, in the last segment of this podcast, I'm speaking with Heather Gardner from the company Vapor Music, a boutique music licensing agency out of Canada. And in this segment, I'm asking Heather whether or not it's best to try and write specifically for licensing, whether or not artists should sit down and specifically try to create music that they think will work in the context of licensing, or whether they should just write whatever they're inspired to write. And this is how Heather answered that question. Interesting. So let's say sort of hypothetically, because most of the people that listen to this podcast are artists and songwriters and they they play in bands and they're obviously interested in licensing their music. Would you say that most of the artists that, that you work with, are they writing music specifically kind of anticipating these types of projects or are you just working with their existing catalogs and they happen to have music stylistically and lyrically that fits advertising, which sort of approach do you see most writers taking? I think it's usually the latter. And I would argue that to make really good music, it's really hard to write it with all of those criteria in mind. It really does start to sound formulaic as soon as you're paying too much attention to it. There are some writers who just write really great ad music. That's what they gravitate towards. That's what is natural to them, and that's what feels authentic. But you can definitely hear when somebody is writing something because they've been told that these are the things that work well in advertising. And sometimes it works, and I'm guaranteed we've licensed a bunch of that too. But I do think the ones that are the most exciting and the things that feel the most authentic to us or tracks that came out of a band or a songwriter's organic creative process and just happened to work really well. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That's sort of the seems to be the consensus because I'm asking, you know, different people that I interview sort of 
this same series of questions, and that's that's a question that I ask everybody that that I interview, and over over and over, I'm really hearing that you should just write what you're inspired to write. But it's it almost seems a little counterintuitive because it it does seem like there's such a specific type of music that works for advertising. But like you said, maybe if you just happen to write music that sort of aligns with with that vibe then uh, that, that's the best sort of a, approach to, t- to take, just to write what you write and get it out there. I think so. I really do think in licensing there is a place for everything. There are more places for certain things, but we've licensed everything from Russian hip-hop to heavy metal to punk to any of those fringe genres that you really wouldn't necessarily think you'd find a spot for. There are spots for everything. But I think when somebody who writes in one genre starts trying to write in something different just so that they can have the commercial viability of writing for advertising, it really does start to feel like they are writing for advertising. And it's hard, and we find it on the original side too, you're trying to find writers who can write for advertising without sounding like they're writing for advertising. And sometimes that's in the production element. Sometimes that's in making things sound a little bit more like a song than a score. But there's definitely tricks and tips to it that as you write more, you can kind of figure out. But I do think the best tip for anybody is to write what you write and write it well And sure, you can play with different elements that might work better, but recognize that if that's not the area that you write well in, not to force it. And there is somewhere that your music will fit. I like that response because that still gives you as an artist sort of a sense of creativity. You're not trying. It's not just about making music a commodity. It's still about creating art. And when it works, it it works. But I think the bottom line is you should write sort of from, from the heart and try to be authentic.